Hello, everybody, and welcome to Bond by Numbers, and this latest episode of Looking Down the Literary Gun Barrel. For this episode, we are uh, going to have a look at John Gardner's fifth installment, or his fifth continuation novel, entitled Nobody Lives Forever. My name is Scott Powell, and I'm joined, as always, in reading these Bond stories by my brother in Bond across the pond, Joshua Taylor. Hello. And we do these reviews sans Jeff. Jeff's not part of our literary adventures on Bond by Numbers. And this is, after all, our seasonal break anyway. But we did we, we did promise to continue uh, sharing our non-Fleming novels or our literary adventures. So this is the latest of those. And we hope that you enjoy. Indeed. Any starting comments, Josh, on this fifth John Gardner adventure? Well... Let our listeners wonder how this will fare under our scrutiny compared to the last <laughs> novel, which I think yeah. got objectively massacred, if I do recall. Yeah, it, it wasn't our favorite read, Roll of Honor. Especially <laughs> it, uh, after coming didn't. from after, especially coming after Icebreaker, which we enjoyed um, mm-hmm. um, immensely. We did, yeah, we did, yeah. We did enjoy Icebreaker, you're absolutely correct. Uh, this one, though, um, we'll have to wait and see where nobody lives forever, falls in the uh, the hierarchy of the Gardner story so far. Now, Josh, uh, just, just for the sake of uh, comparison, um, I'm using the Orion Fiction updated text from 2015. Is this when this one was published? Let me have a look here. Uh, I think it's 2015. Uh, 2012, rather. Sorry, 2012. And I know that you have a uh, an older edition I sent you, didn't I? A second-hand edition? Or did you get this one yourself on ebay uh no you you i you, sent you i sent you, you sent me yeah. this with um the previous one um mm-hmm. roll of with, honor with with roll of honor yeah this is a coronet books version um yeah it's a nice one i like yours it's got that kind of uh, embossed gold text yeah. doesn't it up top yeah very yeah it's a nice it's one. very uh much a product of its time in terms of the cover design and and whatnot yeah uh, but uh, we're not here to talk too much about that. We are indeed here to talk about Nobody Lives Forever. So I'm looking forward to this. It's uh, It's been a while since we read Roll of Honor, and um, high time that we share with our listeners our thoughts on this fifth Gardner adventure. So thanks for joining us here on Bond by Numbers and our literary gun barrel adventure. We hope you enjoy. As always here on the show, we're going to present a summary of action in the story before we go on and do our angle, our uh, scoring, our rating. Yeah. So uh, if, if you feel you know the story and you want to skip ahead, 15 or 16 minutes will do, and we'll get you back on the other side. Uh, but if you'd like a reminder of what this novel was all about, then uh, yeah, sit back and relax and I'll, uh, I'll take you through it. Uh, and for those who don't want to be spoiled by you know the summary, go read the book. You'll probably read it in an evening if you got if you got the time for it, yeah, and then yeah. come back and uh, enjoy the rest of it. Strange things have been happening on Bond's holiday. Off page, M had earlier warned 007 against taking this leave despite it being long overdue, as Europe had become a, quote, hotbed of villainy recently. But Bond wasn't to be put off. His Bentley had been serviced, his Italian road trip all mapped out. Plus, on the way back, he'd be stopping off in Austria 
to check on and perhaps collect his dear housekeeper, May, who was convalescing after a lung surgery. Bond's secondhand smoke has a lot to answer for. First, two passengers on his ferry to Belgium fall overboard. Next, an Italian princess, or principessa, named Suki Tempesta, needs rescuing at a gas station from the dirty hands of would-be assailants. Then, a high-speed chase through northern France in the early morning hours results in an explosion and more death. And finally, a chance spotting of American mobster heavy Paul Cordova, a.k.a. the Poison Dwarf. Some game is certainly afoot, and Bond communicates the news of all these unlikely coincidences back to London. Remarkably, more flukes occur in Brissago, Switzerland. Not only does the poisoned dwarf get murdered in that lakeside village, but when Bond pulls up to the Myrto du Lac, he finds none other than Suki Tempesta checking into the same hotel. Well, the common denominator of all these significant events, of course, is Bond himself. Bond allows himself to get a little closer to Suki to figure out if he can't manage at least one angle of this string of events. She, too, is heading to Rome, but has no lift, and over dinner, Bond agrees to take her with him. A wire from M slightly changes things, however, as Bond is ordered to adjust his travel plans. Instead of heading to Italy to visit service resident Steve Quinn and his wife Tabitha, Bond is put on alert and waits for Rome to come to him so that he can be brought into the bigger, emerging picture. Quinn arrives in the morning and connects the dots for 007. It would appear that Colonel Tamil Rahani, head of Spectre, whose plan Bond spoiled in Gardner's last adventure, Roll of Honor, only has a short while to live. You see, after parachuting off the blimp over Switzerland and escaping capture, Rahani suffered some injuries that led to a rare spinal cancer. He's essentially paralyzed now and left counting down the days. In what time he has, he wants Bond dead, and he's willing to pay big for the prize. Rahani has offered 10 million Swiss francs to whatever terrorist organization, criminal gang, unfriendly intelligence agency, or grade school bully can bring Bond in. The contract has sort of turned James Bond into John Wick, with just a little bit of cannonball run thrown in there for good measure. Quinn tells Bond that he's to get back to London and to safety as soon as possible. To that end, he's provided him with a trailing escort in the shape of two agents in a silver Renault 25 V6 turbo. Bond was warned by M to exercise extreme caution and to distrust everyone. Even Quinn is described by Gardner as avoiding eye contact on occasion and brushing quickly over discussion of smirsh involvement. Five novels in, and I think we're safe to declare that this has become Gardner's modus operandi. Never know who to trust or how often to expect a red herring. So, yeah, watch this space. Two things then happen which thicken the plot and suspicions. The first is a phone call from the clinic and Dr. Kirktum, who reveals that both May and her visitor, Moneypenny, have been kidnapped. The second arrives when Suki, who Bond decides to take along for the ride, remember, reveals that she's promised her old pal Nanette Norwich a ride as well, and Nanette's waiting at a tourist resort not too far away. Hmm... Now, on the back of what Quinn told Bond, this is clearly being telegraphed to us as a bad move, but Bond can't help himself. In fact, some part of him seems magnetically drawn to the trouble. And so, off to collect Nanny. 
Like Suki, Nanette, or Nanny, is a stunning beauty and equal in royalty as the heiress of a petrochemicals company. An egregious character point, to be sure. But given that the first girl is a bona fide princess, I suppose we'll go along with it. A second random yet luxurious backseat passenger. Bond, however, has made his own change to his travel plans and tells the girls that he's heading to Salzburg first. He reveals most, but not all, of his reasoning in the wake of the kidnapping. Well, it's not long before Bond, distrustful of Quinn's escort, tries to lose the Renault on the Autobahn. A shootout ensues, and the Bentley takes some hits when Bond strategically lands it on the hard shoulder. Nanny more than holds her own in the gunfight, and once back in the car, has no choice but to tell the truth. She is the president of the Norwich Universal Bodyguards, an all-female minders service, otherwise known as NUB, that offers protection to paying clients. Suki is one of those clients. Well, Bond's never heard of NUB, but he's properly put out by it, shown up in combat by one of his lady passengers. This sentiment falls flat with us, and even rolls slightly against the grain of Octopussy from just a few years ago, where Roger Moore's Bond leaned into the acrobatic female support that he was offered. In any event, the inspiration for this inclusion feels pretty firmly rooted there in the 1983 Eon production. Ninety minutes later, Bond is caught on the road once more, this time by Austrian police and curmudgeonly inspector Heinrich Osten, otherwise known as The Hook. Judging from Nanny's shock, his reputation precedes him, and it's not very long before we, too, get a front-seat ride with it. The Hook, or Der Hachen, explains to Bond that he's been put in charge of the kidnapping. He instructs Bond to drive to Salzburg, where they are to escort him. Bond sees in Austin a grotesque and latent insanity, which is confirmed as the inspector holds him at gunpoint and forces him to drive to a private address instead of the service's Austrian headquarters. There, Bond is brought to a fancy, comfortable pad and told to sit tight. His objections of diplomatic immunity and embassy assurance are rather lame and fall flat as Austin laughs them off, directing his attention instead towards a television set. The evening news is already reporting the death of both Bond and Austin, freeing up the former for Spectre packaging and the latter for escape and a 10 million franc payday. By using homeless vagrants as victims in their place, their Hacken and his accomplices will escape and cash in on delivery of Bond. Using his utility belt, Bond escapes his room to find Inspector Austin hanging from a hook through the mouth like a grounded sturgeon. The Hook's accomplices were also killed and laid out like dried fillets. Well, this bloodbath would suggest there's at least one bigger fish to fry. The headhunt competition is still anybody's game. Well, with the help of the Salzburg police force led by Commissar Beckett, Bond learns how the kidnapping took place and how Moneypenny got herself entangled in multiple visits to May, enough vulnerability to draw an easy Bond-shaped target on her back. She and May have been taken to Paris after a KGB-style ruse involving stretchers, fake flights, and a night out at the concert hall. Bond gets a call from the clinic and a frantic Dr. Kirkdom now being held hostage. Bond is ordered to check in at the Goldener Hirsch Hotel. When he and the ladies do that, Bond offers them an exit strategy, but both insist that they're going to stay with him until the end. Resigned to take them along, but still secretly suspicious, Bond decides to rest and take a shower. 
Instead of relaxing, he finds himself fighting off a giant vampire bat, fully loaded with any number of imaginable diseases. Given the early 1980s and Stephen King's Cujo fever, supplemented by BBC dramas like Threads and The Mad Death, we can presume that Gardner is aiming for a rabies scare here. Unfortunately, separated from the context a little, the scene comes across as a bit comical, like Bond is fighting a Muppet or something. But given its size, Bond assumes it's a hybrid species or one bred for attacks like this. In any case, Suki saves the day by answering Bond's shouts from the adjacent room. The two maim then permanently end the creature. Bond gets another call from the clinic with instructions to travel to Paris the next morning. Instead, he decides to go on the offensive and secretly visits the clinic to identify the threat more closely. He succeeds in gaining access to the radio room, where he finds none other than Steve Quinn and two nameless stooges holding the doctor under duress. Bond deftly dispatches the goons and ties up Quinn until he'll blab. But he knows that Quinn is nearly as well-trained as he is and won't be easy to break, so instead Bond decides to threaten his wife, Tabitha. He calls in a phony request to set one of the service's so-called psychos, an experienced no-mercy killer, onto her in Rome. While this seems to grease Quinn's tongue a little bit, at least enough to learn that Quinn has been a double agent for a while now, working KGB angles on much of the service's job and intel. May and Moneypenny's kidnapping was the KGB's gamble at drying Bond into a net. It worked, too, well, up until it didn't. According to Quinn, the plan involves Bond being transported to Paris, where he'll then be apprehended and delivered to Spectre in Florida, the Florida Keys more specifically, final destination. So that's where Rahani is living out his final days. Bond leaves the clinic with Quinn still tied up and the doctor with strict instructions to drug him lightly and await help. Bond then returns to the hotel and sends another message to M, who arranges for cleanup and a private jet from Salzburg to Paris, and then onward passage via Pan Am to Miami. Instead of leaving in the morning, though, Bond and the ladies travel at the stroke of midnight, technically still the next day, but in a manner that will evade detection and hopefully result in shaking off the KGB tail that Quinn put in for. Plus, on the Florida side, it would give them an advantage as well. Bond liaises with M's team, led by Crispin Thrush at the airport, before heading off to Miami. When they land, however, Bond stupidly retrieves a message at the British Airways desk and finds himself once more in trouble. Steve Quinn is far from apprehended. Instead, he and the good Dr. Kirkdom were in it together. Bond is taken from the spot and brought aboard a private plane to Key West. He's transported by limousine through the townships, before being thrown by Quinn aboard a fishing vessel and transported offshore, heading for his final destination and a date with a guillotine. It seems that Tamil Rahani has planned a grisly public showcase for Bond's beheading. But Suki and Nani come to Bond's rescue once again. Having managed to track the plane from the airport, they stayed a step ahead and chartered their own boat. Having feigned distress, once the captain of Quinn's boat stopped to help Nani and Suki, they gunned them all down. Pretty ruthless, but the KGB threat is finally over. Ostensibly, all known competitors, bidders, and chasers are now well and truly off of Bond's scent, as he and us readers enter the third act of the novel. 
Well, the final scenes are part travelogue, part denouement, as Bond, accompanied by Suki Tempesta and Nanny Norwich, zero in on Rahani's lair in the Florida Keys, a place called Shark Island, to be exact, and aim to foil Spectre once and for all, while also saving Moneypenny and May, ensuring them himself further years of office flirting and quality scrambled eggs. Bond reckies the Keys and Shark Island pretty well, probably as efficiently and believably here as in any Fleming novel, I think. For whatever else comes up short with this book, Bond is alert and resourceful in these closing stages, operating like the Bond of old. He's suspicious of everyone at this critical stage of the narrative, lovely companions included, and surreptitiously plans his underwater approach to the Spectre compound. He gets there under the cover of darkness, narrowly avoiding a bull shark's gaping maw in the final swim through the shallows, but fails to execute his plan against Rahani, thanks to Nanny Norwich, who, as things turn out, was the head hunt's most skilled competitor of all. Nanny was keeping Bond alive, knocking off all other would-be winners, only to turn him in herself and collect the prize at the last possible moment. Colonel Rahani is wheeled in, but there's not a great scene here. The man can barely speak and relies on a motorized hospital bed for his elevation, sights, and gestures. Nanny takes Bond away to a cell in the compound's basement. What's this, like the fourth time he's been imprisoned now in this book? and bears her story, explaining how she did away with each threat against Bond in turn, starting on the ferry ride to Belgium. But, predictably, he breaks this lock, as he did every other one in the story. None of them have been hard work. He then slinks into the chamber where Rahani is sleeping, vulnerable and alone, and under the guillotine's silent witness, Bond sets plastic explosives all over the Spectre Chief's electronic bed. Bond returns to his cell, but he's soon out again when collected for this narrative's equivalent of the Green Mile. It's a short walk to the site of his execution, but only a few meters of it transpire before Rehani instructs his staff to raise his bed for a better look. And with a push of the remote button, a nurse unwittingly unleashes fiery chaos on the party, incinerates her boss, and plays into Bond's destructive dream perfectly. A brief melee with Nanny ensues before her arms are chopped off by the guillotine. Head and ears ringing, Bond then shoots his way around the crumbling bricks and mortar of Spectre's would-be hideaway until he locates May and Moneypenny. He ushers them to safety outside and into the protection of a U.S. Navy officer. How'd they get there with all the helicopter action and support? Well, Suki, of course, always a step ahead. This Italian princess has made a job of being in the right place at the right time. But as she says, by means of explanation, it's a long story. She relays most of that story to Bond in the final chapter, when they'd all been safely stowed aboard the naval cutter, and Shark Island has gone up as quickly as a paper lantern. By this point, though, it doesn't really register, or even matter. In the end... Moneypenny and May are returned to England while Bond enjoys three weeks' leave with Suki Tempesta in and around the glistening waters of the Florida Keys. All right, good job there, Scott. Let's put it under the Bond by Numbers Through the Literary Gun Barrel review. 
It's our own uh, homemade effects. There we go. Yeah, we've got uh, f- we, we got five letters in this acronym, Angle. It's what we used way back uh, years and years ago when we first uh, reviewed the Fleming novels, and we continue to use it for all of our Bondian adventures on the literary page. So A stands for Allies and Adversaries. We give it a mark out of five. N stands in for narrative, where we look at the mission itself and we we rate what we liked and uh, talk about uh, what we didn't like so much with the, the writing or the, the story. Then we've got the G, which is the girls, or more favorably, the ladies of the novel. It's a big feature in the Bond films and stories and world, and uh, we, we have a look at that and their agency in the story. Then we've got L, which uh, is a big part in the Bond world, of course, the locations, and E for the equipment, how it features and how it's fashioned in the story. So that's our acronym, five marks each, a total of 25 for the story. Josh, allies and adversaries, nobody lives forever. I'll give you first crack. Okay. So let's look at the allies and adversaries we have for this story. There's quite a lot of characters in this that walk in and out of the narrative of Nobody Lives Forever. But we also gonna are going to say that we probably have to include uh, some of the girls or women from, from yeah. our other category into this one as well, because they do kind of act as allies sure. and adversaries too. So we have Nanny Norwich, the the erstwhile girlfriend, actual bodyguard <laughs> of Suki Tempesta. We have the Principessa Suki, who uh, I, I, <laughs> these names, man. Yeah, these names. I'm sorry. I just, yeah. gosh, Suki Tempesta. Suki Tempesta, because she because so like, she's a tempest, because she's an, uh, a passionate, Ita- yeah, clearly passionate yeah. Italian w- woman, uh, who he also makes a ginger, by the way. So that again adds to the whole like. Passionate, uh, yeah. Like Suki, Suki makes you think Japanese, perhaps Southeast Asian. Yeah. Okay, and you get Tempesta, which is clearly a hyperbolic Italian surname. And now you've got the ginger thing going on too. That you know, it's it's a it's yeah, it's a weird name to me. But Suki, hey, sorry, I, when I heard it because I was thinking of like Kissy Suzuki, but no, it doesn't sound that way. Yeah, of course. And then there's like an English model named Suki Waterhouse, so I was thinking of her at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. And then recently, uh, with my sister, I've been watching. I watched um, the series Avatar: The Last Airbender, and there's this character on that show called Suki as well. So I don't know. The name just kind of threw me off, and it just sounded. But it sounds really kind of. I don't know. It just seems like a very kind of. It's just kind of an interesting hybrid of cultures there, or suggestiveness of cultures there, in my opinion. So it's a it's an interesting name, that's for sure. And I have to say. It has more flair than previous Bond girl names that we've gotten from John Gardner. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now, but then again, there are, like you said, there's the, there's the model Suki Waterhouse, and there is there are other actors named Suki. Maybe it's not a mm-hmm. Japanese name. Maybe that's ignorance on my part. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe. just kind of the it's sound not Japanese of it is, is yeah. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, Sukiyaka is Japanese, but that's, of course, a food dish. Yeah, uh, it is, yeah. It's a weird one, a weird one. I don't know. It's a good point. Uh, uh, then we have Quinn, uh, the man, the, the MI6 man in Rome, who ends up uh, being not so mm. good of a guy. Then, <laughs> no. then we have uh, Becker, the inspector in uh, Strasbourg, Austria. Uh, then of course we have his dark side, the darker version of an Austrian inspector with Der Haken, the former Nazi policeman slash eager to be retired um, detective villain in this story, uh, Heinrich Austin. Uh, we have 
Are we told that he was a Nazi? They well, they mentioned he was a that, that, by, by, that bypassed me. Really? That's one of the reasons why they're talking. Yeah, totally. I totally did. Wow. Yeah, they 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 yeah. say it several times. He was definitely someone working with the Nazis in Austria during the Third Reich. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Right. I didn't get that, man. I I but that just that went right over me. I mean, I did this twice. I didn't catch that that he was working with the Aust with the Nazis, but okay, I take yeah. Well, he hook, was definitely yeah. a sympathizer. And speaking of hook, that works very well for Austin Durhaken because he ended up being hung on a hook, right? Skewered, actually. Right. Yeah, he sure did. R- r- he sure right did. through his face. I was trying to find the, the hook here. Here, here it is. Um, well, I'm looking through that chapter as well. I don't. I don't. T- I never met him, but he's on our files. The story is that as a very young man, he was an ardent national socialist. That is a Nazi. Yeah, and he's in Austria. Yeah, yeah. I- they call him uh, Der Haken because he favored a butcher's hook as a torture weapon. If we're dealing with this Joker, we all need spoons a mile long, James. For God's sake, don't trust him. Okay. Okay. Well, he hasn't much choice, does he? He doesn't have much choice. Right. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So let's just have another Nazi in the story. Okay. Just uh, drop the stereotypes in there. Yeah, absolutely. Can't have a John Gardner Bond novel without Nazis or Spectre or whatever has become a Spectre. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's just like I fear. I fear. I feel that he just can't create a new, fresh story each time. He has to keep connecting to older stories. Anyways, so we have the De Hacken, Heinrich Austin. M appears in the story. So does Bill Tanner. We have this guy called the Poison mm-hmm. Dwarf, this mafioso hitman who ends up getting dispatched rather quickly. And we have various other thugs and a nurse under Tamil Rahani, uh, who, of course, returns to the narrative after we encountered him first in the uh, Role of Honor storyline. And we know that he is the new head yep. of Spectre. Yep. And uh, apparently he is the driving force of the narrative of Nobody Lives Forever, as your summary has shown us, as the book has shown us. Uh, That was a a hanging thread that John Gardner quickly pulled on immediately into his next novel following Roll of Honor was to bring Tamil Rahani back in the narrative. By popular demand. Yes, quote unquote popular demand, just to again, <laughs> quote unquote, and just again, also, I found that maybe because he got cancer, it seemed like mm-hmm. that changed him as a character. Like, did it change his mind? Because I found there was almost like a weird nobility to uh, Rahani and uh, a stoicness and strength of character, despite, you know, he was head of Spectre. He seemed like he was a pretty rational kind of villain in uh role of honor and i feel i feel here he's just like an over-the-top blofeldian cricature dying in a hospital bed who wants to take his revenge out on bond i i don't know it's uh <laughs> i think i think you've nailed it i don't he, think you need to go he kind of he kind of reminds me a bit of um of uh this character in breaking bad called hector salamanca who was this big mob kingpin for the big cartel kingpin at one time who had a stroke, who was ended up basically, uh, uh, what was the term catatonic almost without a crippled in a wheelchair. And he could only speak Mm -hmm. through like a bell on his, like a a bell on his wheelchair. And that was how he communicated. But this guy, as we learned through flashbacks was like the head of the cartel. And then he's reduced to this kind of bitter worn, like wizened uh, individual so to ha- so Rahani kind of reminded me of Hector Salamanca 
uh, who, if you've seen Breaking Bad, is a very memorable figure in that series. Cool. Well, Rahan, okay, so um, do you want to give your score for this, or or do you just... These characters flit I mean, in and out you've of gone the narrative. Uh, the only one that really kind of stands out in terms of any kind of arc or development, and even though it's kind of a late-minute kind of twist that, to me, it's so predictable at the beginning, but then you kind of just forget about it and realize, no, he's just making it so obvious that she can't be that. But nope, she actually is that. Because John Gardner again returns to his that. to his old tricks, and Nanny Norwich ends up being a bad guy, and uh, the one responsible for the big head hunt, or the one that wanted to win the big head hunt by getting Bond's head on a platter to uh, Rahani. So, yeah, a silver platter, a, no a silver platter, John the Baptist style. Yeah, absolutely, Salome and all that stuff. Is she Salome? Uh, in yeah, I don't know. I I don't know. I think that's given. I think that's giving. Uh, Gardner a bit too much credit there. <laughs> I don't know I would go with it. I mean, in terms of allies, we got M working from a distance here. I mean, yes, you're right. The chief of staff is in there, but there's nobody here in this story to trust apart from Suki, but that only comes at the end because he does mistrust but, everybody. But the the doctor, he doesn't mistrust the doctor. No, he he, he gets it wrong there. He, he gets it wrong there because you I know? think he just didn't see it in that quarter and that happened. And with the dark, the doctor is That's kind right. of played as a victim yeah. midway through. But we, yeah. he, seems, he seems to... But Bond refers to him as a godsend. Yeah. Doesn't he? He says that to uh, to Crispin. Yeah, because Bond's emotionally uh, vulnerable. He cares a lot for May. Now, May is a character that was introduced in the Fleming Bond novels, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And she has been mentioned in these stories, too. She, yeah, she has been kind of referred to. Uh, both May and Moneypenny are basically there for raising dramatic stakes, essentially. that They're there to make us care, care about yeah. Bond's motivation in this story. Besides Bond just like... On a on a road trip, you know, doing his usual shtick and whatnot, um, with mm -hmm. yeah, kind of overlooking the fact that there's really not much story to tell here. Well, they are just yeah. I, perhaps we talk about them, Money Penny and uh, and May. We can talk about them when we get to the narrative or the girls, perhaps you know that section <laughs> yeah. because I don't think as allies or adversaries they have anything to offer um, because they don't service his conflict uh, they're neither antagonistic nor are they uh, protagonistic they just they don't do anything they're just the things he's the MacGuffins I guess you yeah. know um, the, so there was enough in there for me to kind of, uh, kind of like enjoy these characters as a whole you know spread through and mm -hmm. made me want to you know see what happened next sort of a thing so I, I passed the allies and adversaries I give it a three I, I did like how okay. I thought I saw the twist with Nanny coming but then it didn't happen, and then I was seduced into kind of a uh, oblivious state where, okay, maybe she is a good guy after all, and and this is just being very, but kind of bored. I was bored at the same time, and then once the reveal happened, yeah. I also kind of, despite me wanting something to come out of that, I was I rolled my eyes at it at the same time. Yes, yeah, because yeah, it was like a Nina Bismacher thing, like we got with for special services, right? It's it's the same gimmick that we're we've got a girl who, you know, I mean, she was playing a victim there, save me Bond, but here you've got the girl who saves Bond and then turns out to be bad. So it's not that great a deviation no. in terms of you know networking the point. It is fairly similar. Tamil Rahani disappointed me a little bit in this story. I mean, he's still very underdeveloped as a big bad. I mean, he's the head of Spectre. Two books now, and he's still coached very thin in, in 
and on the page. It kind of reinforces my belief, Josh. I know we've talked about this before, but Rahani reinforces my belief that Gardner is interested in writing for the screen. He's doing treatments of action films more than he is character decoration. Like, Rahani, as the big bad, should be developed. Yeah, like... He just needs to be better developed than this. Like, if you think about Thunderball and you think about all the backstory of Blofeld, the moral compass kidnappings and the violet breath mints and all of that stuff, like, that's character building. Mm. That's that's getting to know the bad guy who is still a mystery in the story. But there's time that Fleming gives over to development. Here, he wants us to see a film baddie. And we don't need to know much about the film, Batty. We just follow, you know, the villain's movements, right? Yeah. If we even compare Rahani, though, with earlier bad guys from the Gardner sweep, like the Laird of Mercaldi or Bismacher himself, you know, the art dealer, we, we get stuff there. We get stuff. But with Rahani, who's supposed to be the biggest of all the big bads, he's really just a damp squib. And that's disappointing because it's not like Gardner can't characterize. He's just making an active decision to gloss over this figure in 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 the pursuit of of uh, kind of cheaper knocks nanny as we've already established or not established as you suggested i think and correct me if i'm wrong but she's just a bit lame right she talks weird and she's sort of cool like an old arcade character <laughs> kind of like she fights her way around the maze the story NPC character disarms. yeah it's kind of like yeah exactly kind yeah, of like, uh, yeah totally what they're playing recently uh uncharted uh, even in the first Uncharted okay, yeah, yeah. game, when you're playing uh, Nathan Drake and stuff, and you're in the middle of a firefight shooting at the at the baddies, uh, there's a girl, Elena, who's like a reporter who follows you around and stuff because she wants to find the treasure too. And there's kind of like a a relationship dynamic between the two characters that the voice actors sell so well. Mm. But in these entanglements, like uh, Elena has a, pulls out a gun and she's taken out baddies with you, so she's like a supporting NPC mm-hmm. character that the AI is, is using to help you take out guys while you're, you know, shooting at them as well. So, and she follows you around. You got and she follows you everywhere. She follows you around everywhere too, right? So I can see Nanny is definitely mm-hmm. like an NPC character. You're trying to prevent Suki from being killed or something, or Bond being killed, and she's there to back you up, essentially. So you're very smart into going to a video game analogy with that. That's just kind of how I see it. But, you know, it's funny because the second time I read through this or, you know, I listened to the audiobook after I finished reading the book myself and um, I picked up on the fact that Suki telegraphs her, her badness, right? Like that whole scene with the vampire bat, Suki talks about it. Oh, how like she plays pranks on her. And this is like the type of thing that Nanny would do. Like, fuck me. Like, who needs friends when you get enemies like that you know he I mean? would do that but that, um, yeah that's true that's, that's a, yeah it's a stupid foreshadowing just, but it is a foreshadowing all this thing oh very yeah 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 well you've mentioned all the others i, I like the poison dwarf i like the hook uh i think the heinrich austin school he's an interesting character even if he's short-lived steve quinn uh he's neither the first nor the last turn court um, uh, that we're going to see in these in these i mean he is almost identical to brad turpitz and yes, icebreaker exactly like it's a character it's a character mold instead of the cia you've got a service agent in rome like it's the same thing and dr k is you know a more believable um turn because he's going to get paid off and that that makes sense to him so i buy that the whole salzburg clinic thing i went for a three same as you uh readable some are interesting, but none of them are deep. So I think a three represents that, a three out of five. Um, in terms of narrative, Josh, I like the setup here. 
I like it a lot, actually. I think it's different, and it shakes up the here's your assignment bond kind of pattern that we've grown accustomed to, not just with Gardner, but with Fleming as well. In that way, I think Gardner captures more of a realistic sequel feeling to the start of this book, and that fits, I yes. think. We should have a sequel feeling to, to it, because it is a soft sequel to the previous story. In a way, yeah. The head hunt is engaging. You know, in my summary, I referred to it as like John Wick light, you know, because it is kind of like that. It's something different now that there's all these contracts or the, the single contract and all these different organizations out on bond. When the kidnapping enters the plot, things do get weird for me. I mean, Money Penny, and this is, I think, what we got to talk about as a point. Money Penny and Bond really don't feel like they know each other well in these books. It's fan service. It, they're, they're hangover of Fleming. It's fan service, yes, but why? Why, even as fan service, would Moneypenny be spending her annual leave visiting Bond's housekeeper in Austria? Like, when did these two women ever meet? Why would Moneypenny want to go visit May? I know. I know it's because plot, but you don't need two women for Bond to be chasing here. You didn't have it in Skyfall, and look how successful that was. We don't need to have Moneypenny and May thrown into it. Just one of them would do it. Like, I believe Bond has the the connection to May more than he does to Moneypenny. The only thing... Like, Moneypenny is a girl mm. he can continues to push to the side. He flirts with her, but he's not going to go rescue her. Yeah. I think the back of the book here refers to her as like one of the like one of the more important, uh, the two most important women in Bond's life. Isn't that what it says on the back of unless, my Unless... Yeah, the two women uh, who matter to him most. <laughs> unless... Like, what? Uh, unless John Gardner is building up towards a endgame with Bond and Moneypenny. A, a ship... Maybe, yeah, maybe he is. It's yeah. po- and then we'll to see. create this emotional connection between the two women in his life might be deliberate, I don't know, but it could mm-hmm. also be fan service because Fleming is, is using all of the past pieces of the Bond franchise in his novels, but he's using what are more established in the films more so than in the books. Yes, yes, that's correct. Absolutely correct. The strokes are there of the film writing. But I'm just asking you, uh, uh, you know, do you feel... And it's okay if you do, but do you feel like the relationship between James Bond and Moneypenny is developed in these Gardner books? Because to me, it's just a hangover. It's there, as you say, fan Isn't service. You have to have it in there. Is Moneypenny so, in these books as a character? No, she's she has she been, was she's been in previous books. Okay, she's men- I thought yeah, she was mentioned, yeah. but I, I recall her being in a scene, but I probably glossed over it do you or not, forgot about it like, because it's forgettable. Do you not think it's it's a little ridiculous that she is choosing to spend her holiday by visiting bond's housekeeper like is that is it just me yeah it's about as ridiculous as a vampire bat in a hotel room (laughs) well i think that's i think that's more grounded but okay (laughs) anyway moving on um moving on uh live and let die vibes you know pretty strong in the final third here deliberately so i think like bond with the scuba thing you know but bond is written as well at the end of this book i think is anywhere in the gardener books even some of fleming's own recce writing i think is 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 good here i think gardener knows what he's writing about i think the character under his pen and um and power here is believable uh he's sharp he's cautious he's ahead of the game in the late stages of the novel to say not much more for the other parts of the book, but at the end of this book, I think Bond has written particularly well. The ending is also, interestingly enough, and maybe this is just because I taught it recently, but it's a bit like Lord of the Flies, right? You've got the Navy rescuing them, you've got the fire and the destruction on the island, <laughs> and then you got Bond coming out like, what's going on? Like, you know, he didn't expect that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that, that's by the by. The, the narrative's fun. I like the setup. I like following the chase. I don't like the characters 
thinness in it, but I thought the narrative hook was good. Me too. And uh, I like where it goes at the end. I went for a four. I'm, I'm quite favorable on the narrative and the, the kind of the plotting of this one. I like it. I veered between three and a half to a four. I eventually went with a uh, a three and a half just because like the characters, as you okay. said, were too thin for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, if there was a little more fleshed out, I think I could have gave it a four. But again, I was kind of let down again with the whole... The twist with Nanny was so obvious in the beginning, but then I kind of forgot about it, which to credit John Gardner, he tricked me. He he tricked me for, for quite a bit there. Mm-hmm. But when this but the, and when it when the reveal happened that she was involved, I was just like, oh come on. Again, mm. like this is yeah, I know. Again. daughter. Yeah, again, disappointing. Again. I also like felt though, like I will give him credit for this. I did feel that Nanny was more developed than Blofeld's daughter. And uh, hmm. Like, but what I didn't yeah. like about the writing of her character, of of uh, in terms of the narrative, I guess this goes into the girls category. But he had to make her an evil lesbian, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. We've seen that before too. Yep, we've seen that before too. The only woman who can resist uh, the the magic penis is someone who doesn't want a penis. That's true. Except pussy galore. That's that's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's. For, but she didn't resist it, did she? She was turned. Yeah, that's true. But anyways, it's, uh, it's it's pretty shameful. It's shameful. Yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed the story overall. Like, I found it as a, as a continuation of what Roll of Honor left. It was a good continuation. I was disappointed with uh, Rahani. Mm-hmm. Really, shouldn't have been involved. I think I'm, what I'm hoping yeah. for is is that Gardner is decided to end the Spectre storyline uh, here and now. And it's going to focus on other villains, like maybe to go back to Smirsh or or something like that in the in the mm-hmm. novels that, that come. Uh, but I felt that him... Yeah, some standalones. I'm hoping this is him saying goodbye to Spectre for good, because I think that organization is crippled now. I mean, if you think about it, Spectre's been having quite a, a rough go. They lost Blofeld. They lost Blofeld's daughter already. And then mm. they lost now... Their, their, their new leader is now dead as well. So who takes control of Spectre <laughs> yeah. now? It's kind of like, uh, yeah. it's kind of like you know, like the hand of the king in Game of Thrones. It's not. It's a shitty job to have, or like a, a teacher <laughs> for the dark arts, you know, in uh, at Hogwarts, right? Like it's it's the position that you just don't want. <laughs> it's a poison chalice. It re- really, yeah, is. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, uh, let's let's move on to girls, and I think we've said enough for narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, girls for me. Ooh, Suki Tempesta. Okay, so let's get this straight. Italian princess. Um, right. Sure. Okay, sure. Why does she need to be a princess? No clue why she needs to be a princess. Is that supposed to make me like her more, care for her more because she's posh? She is thinly sketched. She's naive. She's predictably smitten by Bond. Even now, having finished the book, I, buddy, I, I do not quite understand why she was in the story. I mean, in the previous story, Percy Proud was put onto the case with Bond in it, and that was explained. She was terribly written, but her presence was at least explained. Even Leiter's daughter, Cedar, made more sense in, in that book. Mm, but here... Hot take, but okay, I, I see where you're going. Hot though. take. I I, okay, going. okay. So... <laughs> Maybe maybe we give Suki a chance, okay? And we go along with her being a hapless victim that Bond coincidentally comes upon and helps to save. It's a, just a coincidence. Uh, why, when he learns the stakes of the contract on her head, on her on his head, 
why does he choose to take her to ever move forward with her when he knows what's going on? Now, That's he refers to her as an insurance policy. No, but he's not having sex with her. True. He refers to her as an insurance policy, but I do not get it. Like, even if he suspected, right? Yes. Even if she, even if he suspected that she and Nanny, but she could somehow lead him to Spectre. Taking her along is in direct opposition to M's orders. Yes. For one thing. It's a reckless and unbelievable move by Bond, and I think it hurts the story. He'd have been better off on his own, um, but the movie formula is so strict here in Gardner that Bond needs to have a girl with yes. him, even if she offers nothing apart from two rescues. I mean, she does rescue him on a couple of occasions, but uh, I mean, I, I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get why an Italian princess is at a gas station about to be, you know, is she really dumb? Is she really dumb? That that's why she needs the bodyguard. Like, would she only have? Would Natalie Italian princess Nan- only have one bodyguard as well? Uh, that's what doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, if, you know, yeah. if it's it, an it Italian no princess, sense. they're going to have like escorts, and they're going to be. Yeah, it's that's right. Yeah. We're on the same page, maybe with that. Nanette Norwich. Um, I've just got one word: ridiculous. It's the only word I've got for her. Uh, I know you said you think she's a little better. I oh, we've seen her before, and that just leaves us with Money Penny and May. Like. I don't mind that Nanny's with... I, oh, yeah, I do. I do mind. I do mind. I don't like the girls in this book. I think they're among the worst. Uh, the ladies in this novel really sucked for me. I didn't think they were developed properly. They were tokenistic to the point of stupidity. Like, I still don't understand what Suki's doing in the book or why Bond decided to take her. I do not see a secret agent, even a secret agent that's horny or wants sex or loves ladies. I don't see why Suki Tempesta is in this book. Bond, as an intelligent figure, uh, even a field operative, you're just not going to take her with you if you know the world is after you. Like, I don't see that. Like, he gives them an exit strategy, and that's when he should have booted them out the car. But He doesn't. But why why doesn't he do it? Okay, I I think... Does he want Nanette because she is a backup uh, for him that he can use in in, in a fight if if needed? But in order to have... Um, Nanette with him, he needs to have Suki there because Nanette is working for Suki. So I think that's why he sort of kidnaps them in quote unquote, uh, in a way to bring Nanette along for backup. Uh, that's the only logic that I can, well, who's that I, I can ring out of it anyways. I could be completely just, yeah, I, I dude, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand what came first, like Nanette or Suki who, why does Suki have Nanette? as a bodyguard if she knows nothing and Nanette, Nanny's big game is to just wait for everyone and then take Bond in herself yeah. so she helps Bond but is it where's the serendipity drop like where does the coincidence lie because I, 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 I don't understand yeah. I don't understand was Bond led to the gas station by Nanny or like I, I don't understand how it happened that Bond just he just fumbled upon stumbled upon a girl in need who was also linked to a bodyguard that wanted yeah. to get Bond. I mean, Europe Europe is not a village no. of five families. Europe is not, oh, here's six settlements. Europe is a massive continent yeah. and Bond is driving through it. What's what's the fucking likelihood? Like it's just too dumb to access for me. <laughs> it is. So it is. I failed I failed I failed the girls in this story. I didn't want to because I like the setup of the narrative, but I failed the girls because I don't understand their agency in the story or how it they're so shoehorned in for convenience sake. Mm. And listen, anybody listening disagrees with me, please write in, explain, comment to on our Instagram, give me an email. 
bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. Tell me, tell us how these girls make sense in the book because I don't get it. So I went for a two because Suki helped save Bond a couple of times. Like when they're in the story, they do stuff. Yeah. But I don't, I, I can't get past what and how they get in there. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. So maybe this should be a hit against the narrative. I don't know. Maybe it, it, it technically kind of, should be a it, hit against the narrative. It, 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 it connects to that thread. I agree. Um, I don't know, buddy. Uh, what did you What did you do with the girls? How do you reconcile this? I passed them. Um, okay. Mostly because of Nanette, who I think I found a little more intriguing than you did because I kind of liked her attitude midway. There was a modern kind of feel to her as a, as a, as a Bond woman, so to speak. Until, of course, they made her a femme fatale by the end of it. Um, I also passed yeah. because oh, I, I like the idea of the female strength. I like the idea of the, uh, you know, the, 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 I like the refreshing nature of, of the bodyguard group and all of that stuff. That's fine. But I just don't understand how they get in there. I don't, I don't see the connection. So the more you talk about it, the more I listen to myself, talk about it, the more I probably should have punished the narrative for this and not the girls themselves, but I still think they're thinly sketched and poor, but yeah. Yeah, anyway, getting back. Sorry, sorry. But uh but I think in the end though, like uh I'll keep I'll I'll stay happy with my two and a half even though I think it's a quasi fail on the basis that I think John Gardner is setting us up for a new henchwoman and we're going to have Nanette return with a burned face <laughs> and she's going to have cybernetic or like prosthetic hands or something or something <laughs> like that and she's going to be out on she's and she's going to be like a recurring okay character that, okay. that's for bond i uh, that is my right. hope so that's why i'll stick to my two and a half and this is just a setup for what's to come okay can i ask before we leave girls though can i ask you to try for my sake for my sake yes. can you explain how the connections work suki hired her to look after her for something different for something for something different and then bond is like I, I just don't see how the connections work. I don't understand how they get together. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see who came first or who... If Suki is... If, if Nanette is after Bond the whole time, yeah. then she's just relying on her friend to like, to coincidentally meet Bond? Or is she make, does she make the decision after she learns about the hit on him? It could be arguably... And if that's... Like, it, could, I don't know. it could be argued that Nanette is also keeping Suki around because she wants... She's actually... Uh, desires her as well so she's just Hmm. keeping this oblivious princess around as kind of like a possible you know arm candy for her at some point and hoping that you know that but they're friend but they're friends from school like yeah childhood friends it's yeah this is all messed up yeah it it doesn't it's (laughs) just poor it's just poor it doesn't quite make much sense i will say um it would be more interesting to Uh, me if both of them were in league together that would have been a more interesting, and that would have been a, I think, a more interesting twist. And it would make more sense that Suki would be, you know, like the richer, like the spoiled brat aristocrat who's probably a sociopath, and she's in lesbians with, <laughs> quoting Scott Pilgrim here, she's in le- <laughs> she's in lesbians, you know, with um, nanny, right? Even her name yeah, is, yeah. Is, is suggestive because in a way suge- she's yeah. kind of a nanny and that kind of just creates that whole fantasy aspect of it. Right. But yeah. Okay. Let's, let's move away from this, yeah. um, this tortured category. Yeah. Uh, you went two and a half out of kindness and I went for two. Cause I, I just, I don't know for me, it's the connections and how they all come together in the story. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like it would have made more sense if it was, if Suki was a girl who, 
who was working at the gas station, you know, and Bond helped her and then she needed a ride home. Like even that is more loosely believable than than what we get here. But then, of course, how does Nanny enter the story? I don't know. Locations. Uh, here's something more favorable, buddy. Um, I, I really like locations here in this story. They're among my favorites of the Gardener sweep so far. Salzburg and Key West are both rendered real nice. I get the distinct feeling, though, buddy, that these are places that he, Gardner enjoys himself yes. because he lingers in them and he really puts effort into transporting us there. Yes. He talks about the stands, the food stalls, the smells, you know, the weather. We get we get Salzburg, the music, the op, you know, the uh, the concert hall. We get not as much on Salzburg as we do Key West, but I think together because he doesn't overcomplicate with like lots and lots and lots of places. There are these locations, and yeah, we get a little bit of Italy, but it's not much. No. It's mostly Salzburg. It's mostly Key West, and it's all there. The restaurant, the foods, the foodie aspects are good. The weather, mm -hmm. the people. He makes an effort here, uh, and I think convincingly Bondian effort. Um, for one of the first times in a while, I feel like the writer is a traveler, like Fleming was yes. when he was writing Thrilling Cities and all of that sort of stuff. Like Helsinki maybe was also treated nicely by Gardner, but yes. I didn't think as this well. I, I went I went big on this, pal. I went for four and a half here. The interior settings are still a little wanting for me, but four and a half, it might be gushing. That's a criticism that I'll take. You know, I fully appreciate that. Uh, it might be gushing, but it's been so long since I've really enjoyed being in a place where the writer lingers that I'm going to go here. I'm going to go to um, four and a half with my settings, I, my locations. I hear you on that. I gave it four out of five uh, for that reason as well. Okay. Um, I, yeah. For John Gardner, this is the best travelogging that he's done um, in a mm -hmm. Fleming and yeah, fashion totally. for the series so far. And mm -hmm. I mean, I guess he had to because it was it's a, it is a road trip story in a way. It is, it is it yes, is, absolutely. It is true. a chase, yep. so it's going to involve moving through locales, but it also wants to create a sense of, you know, world building at the same time. So that's very important. I found that we're being shown these locations as they encounter them, as they're walking through them. These locations don't feel forced. It feels like it's organic to the geography of the area in which Bond is traveling. And unlike, if you go back to, for example, to I believe it's. Um, What's the first novel called of uh, the John Gardner run? The first one, License Renewed. License Renewed with like... He does a good job. He, writes right? about, yeah, he does a good job. Like now. when he writes about Majorca, it's very detailed, but it feels like, okay, here is the section of the novel where I'm going to be like the most like Ian Fleming and I'm going to give you like an overwrought description of the entire area and then kind of mm -hmm. build an action sequence into it. Uh so I found they were kind of forced together in that novel, like the idea of the bond action and character forced into that situation in the first novel. Whereas here I feel bond is moving through mm -hmm. it and he's reacting to things around him and remembering details and remembering things when he's walking through the town square in key West and, and whatnot, you feel like he's experiencing the geography, the locale with you as opposed to, the writer, yeah. John Gardner, overly describing where he is because he's done a whole bunch of research on that area for the purpose of yeah. making it stand out in the book. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I think you're right. I think he's been here and he likes it a bit. And I mean, maybe, and if he hasn't, then hey, good on you, buddy. You're just writing nicely, yeah. you know? So yeah. with that done, we have our locales. So the last category of our angle is the equipment, uh, the gadgets that are used in this book and what we thought of them. 
and to be plastic explosives plastic explosives we got that asp gun back again i miss the walther ppk Mm -hmm. personally (laughs) uh but john gardner is always fixating on some new weapon for bond like before it's those knives well the asp has been around for a while been around for two books but the knives, for example, in Roll yeah. of Honor. Now, apparently, mm-hmm. Bond is, a, is an expert yeah. knife thrower like Mishka and Grishka <laughs> and Octopussy in that one. And now, apparently, That's right. yeah. he's, he's got that. I don't know. He's either like, I don't know, like, he's, he's like Daredevil or, yeah. or Nightwing with like the Escrima, you know, with the, uh, with the baton, right? <laughs> yeah. So, like, Bond. The telescoping baton. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It reminds me of Daredevil, you know, with his uh, Escrima and whatnot. <laughs> so, uh, that's the focus that Gardner put on was this baton device that he thought was pretty cool. Uh, we have the CC 500 radio that was mentioned a lot. That's it. I like that. Yeah. I do like that thing. That's cool. That's cool. He uses it. Well, he uses it at least three times that I can recall. And we got the lock picking kit in the belts and then, yeah, which comes in handy. Another one with small explosives inside his trousers, like his like combat, trousers or whatever he was wearing waistband the waistband inside, yeah. the, inside the waistband of it right yeah <laughs> just pulling out the, he's just pulling it out like toothpaste yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay he was in the bentley in this one he wasn't driving the sob but he did rent a sob after well, this is the second bentley now isn't the it second Does, bentley isn't this the second novel with the with the, the with the bentley yeah, yeah. it's the second appearance the Mulsanne turbo the bentley yeah going back to fleming there um mm-hmm. and then of course we have a guillotine in this story Again, that's sure we do sure do again i feel more that uh whitaker in the living daylights is like an amalgamation of of john gardner characters or something i i don't know <laughs> totally mm-hmm. and another we definitely have him yeah art autumn holy yeah yeah games man yeah and the most interesting use of an animal for a weapon of course is the vampire bat <laughs> it is yeah that's pretty special that vampire bat Let's uh, scare people with rabies because rabies is not a great thing if you get infected. So, No, and that was big in the 80s as my summary went through, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I remember growing up, though, in the 80s, rabies was terrifying. And, but, and, especially if you owned a pet. You know, if you owned a pet, you were terrified of it. Like and, old Yeller, uh, right? A lot more. Old Yeller, Cujo. Yeah. yeah, man, it's all there. Yeah. It's all there. And like, like with a lot of scares, you know, you... With the hindsight of science, we understand more, and it's still a very serious condition, but one that can be treated. And Bond is fearing of any number, I suppose, any number of chemical or uh, viral diseases that can come from this blood-sucking bat. But it's also like vampires. You know, vampires are are never out of fashion, are they? And it's not just a bat. It's got to be a vampire bat. It's got to be... But it's a big fucking one because its wingspan's like, like huge, right? Yeah. I'm just wondering where the heck Nanny got the vampire bat from. Like, was she carrying it like in her mm. in her purse or like in her in her in, in her car- yeah. in her carry on bag in her suitcase? Like, where was this vampire bat ob- obtained from? Mm-hmm. Did Spectre have the resources to get vampire bats anywhere? You know, like I don't know. But she she's she wasn't. And this is the other thing about Nanny. My God, we come back to her again. Was she a Spectre? operative no. no she was a merc. she was just the highest she was just she was a merc just working for herself exactly so where did she get a vampire bat one that was you know trained specifically for the purposes of you know attacking humans and isn't it a good thing that bond keeps that that um escrima close to the shower you know good idea yeah never go to the shower without your loofah your soap and your escrima your huge, your huge baton yeah exactly 
Oh, gosh. Okay, so there are some shortcomings here. I think we've acknowledged that. Um, <laughs> Slightly. Uh, I, I went for a three with the equipment overall. Same. I mean, there are some cooler things in here, but did you? You went for a three as I well. Did. Yeah, so obviously nothing that nothing that really stood out as, as being awesome for you. Yeah, it's frankly very utilitarian. It worked for the narrative and the story. There wasn't anything over the top minus the vampire bat. Even a yeah. guillotine, yeah. like, I, I don't know, it kind of has some symbolic sense, but it's that was a bit over the top for me. But beyond that, like, the lockpicking equipment, that works out. Even the mm -hmm. baton is mm -hmm. believable, even though I kind of roll my eyes at John Gardner and his, like, fixation with different weapons each each movie. E sorry, each book. Yeah, um, each book. Each sorry, movie. that was, well, a, that was a, a Freudian slip, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. It was, yeah. It was. So the scores are in then, my man, for Nobody Lives Forever. Uh, I am at a 16.5 out of 25, okay. and you are at a 16. So Ooh. this was one that I enjoyed a, just a shade more than you, but come on, there's not much in it, is there? No. I didn't dislike it. I enjoyed reading it. It was fun. Uh, it was a good way to, mm -hmm, spend, mm -hmm. good way to spend an evening, uh, but at the same yeah, time, yeah. forgettable. Yes, ephemeral, I think, yep. Um, although there are some good features to this book that I would credit. So I, I guess the takeaway here for me uh, from me is that nobody lives forever is interesting. It's it's a good setup. It's a it's a neat narrative. It's doing something different with Bond. Uh, this time it's you know it, it's Bond being hunted down by lots of different. You know it's it's not Bond on a mission. It's Bond trying to figure out how to survive, and that's cool. Um, you see him a little more resourceful, uh, and it's also a book that's really good for locations if you like lingering in places. Uh, he gives you Gardner gives us a good time there. So for narrative and for locations, it's a good book. The rest of it is, it's pretty forgettable. And the girls, is, it's deplorable <laughs> from a girls or you know Bond women perspective. It's it's pretty crap. Pretty weak. Even if the girls are like the idea of nub, the idea of a female bodyguard agency is cool. Uh, it doesn't come across as as interesting because ultimately she has name. to be bad and she has to be a lesbian. <laughs> I hate that name. Yeah, all that stuff. Nub. It also has sexual intonations as well, and I just found that mm. he had to he had to put off putting, yeah, yeah off putting, yeah, nub, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Well, uh, what's next then in uh, in the John Gardner sweep? I believe it's No Deals, Mister Bond. Mm. Yeah, that'll be our next one, which we'll uh, we'll get into shortly. But uh, yeah, we are still on our seasonal break. We're going to take a couple more months off before we return to discuss where uh, Bond by numbers will go. But we'll probably get one more Gardner novel in before Jeff rejoins us for main show episodes, huh? What do you think? I would say we probably get one more in, yeah. Yeah, we'll no get more, one more deals in before the summer. Mr. Bond, if that was a movie, it would be the first Bond film to have James Bond's name in the title. That's kind of interesting. That is pretty cool, yeah. It, I wonder if we'll ever see that. I just get a feeling it's almost like John Gardner just like gave up. Like, what do I call this novel? No deals, Mr. Bond. Sure. <laughs> Publish it. It's done. That's right. Stick. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, put a pin in it. It's over. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so is this episode. So uh, thanks, buddy. It was good fun talking this one through with you. And uh, everybody, you can find us on the socials. Check out our Instagram at bbn underscore pod or email us at bondbynumbers3 at gmail.com. Let us know how you enjoyed this story, how you enjoy Gardner. Uh, let us know how you enjoy anything. You know, lots going on in the Bond world right now. We're, we're quite aware of that. And uh, we hope that wherever you are listening to this, you're, uh, you're having fun with your books and with your life and with your bond. So take care, everyone. Josh, thanks again, pal. Take care, buddy.